Hey adventurers, so this episode kind of has some audio inconsistencies that I promise are not going to be a thing going forward. I might even go back and re-record this episode, but right now I'm too lazy. So sit back, bear with, and enjoy the show. Bermuda. Most know it as a spooky triangle. And it is, but also it's a beautiful archipelago and it carries its own intriguing reputation because Bermuda is a nation that was literally built on top of lost treasure. Sorry to dash the hopes of paranormal investigators everywhere, but there is no supernatural explanation for why boats and planes have gone missing in the waters between Florida, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. It has been statistically proven that the so-called Bermuda Triangle has no more, nor less, maritime disappearances and plane crashes than anywhere else in the world. Of course, maybe that's what they told me to tell you. Since it was first discovered by the Spanish in 1503, the island of Bermuda has laid claim to over a thousand different shipwrecks, which can be found right off of its coastal waters. And this graveyard of ships, as it has been dubbed, has more wrecks than anywhere else in the world. In time, Bermuda became a beautiful trading outpost, surrounded by shipping lanes and dotted with harbors. The kind of place where Captain Jack Sparrow might hang out when not doing pirate things. And as the centuries went on, those sunken Spanish galleons waited on the seafloor, guarding what would eventually become Bermuda's economic miracle. In the 1950s, Bermuda had since turned over from maritime trading outpost to Margaritaville. It was also the home of one Teddy Tucker, who wasn't a pirate, but was definitely just as cool. Teddy Tucker was kind of like Jacques Cousteau meets Indiana Jones, and like any good Bermudian, he had a strong relationship with the ocean. Growing up, he spent his days swimming and exploring Bermuda's rocky lagoons and hidden coves, which already means he had a much cooler childhood than you or I ever did. And as a teenager, he kept himself busy by diving for coral to sell to tourists. During World War II, Teddy joined up with the Royal Navy, putting his diving skills to good use. I'm not sure what kind of use this entailed exactly, but I like to think it involved punching sea Nazis in the face. After World War II ended, Teddy returned home to find a country that had seen better days. The war had not been kind to the Bermudian economy, and work was scarce, even for a war hero. Teddy started up a salvaging business with a friend, but business wasn't exactly booming. With very little salvage to salvage, Teddy and his partners would spend their days drinking and fishing instead. How terrible it must have been for them. So at this point in history, scuba diving had just become a thing, thanks to the ingenuity of that aforementioned Frenchman. The Bermudians, who were a chill people, had a surplus of gorgeous waters, so this new way of exploring the ocean was pretty much on brand for them. Teddy Tucker certainly agreed. And we all know he had loads of free time to pick up a new hobby. Bermuda's history as a Caribbean trading outpost meant that there were lots of old ships coming in and out of port. And where there were lots of Spanish ships, 
there was also a lot of native gold. And where there was a lot of hurricanes, there was a lot of Spanish shipwrecks with said native gold ending up on the bottom of the ocean. Until the invention of the Aqualung, most of these sunken wrecks were unknown and unexplored. One day in the early 50s, Teddy and his motley crew of divers were out salvaging when they came across the ruins of a wooden ship about 30 feet from the ocean surface. The ship had been splintered long ago, but a series of old cannons stuck out from the underwater sands. After raising them up, Teddy assumed he could sell them for scrap. That's basically how his business worked. But when the treasury stepped in and offered him a higher price for their historical value, Teddy realized that he was onto something. Not only that, but the Bermudian government came to Tucker and told them that his days would be better served working for the National Aquarium rather than doing what was essentially the equivalent of ocean dumpster diving. With Teddy's scuba skills having turned up serious loot, suddenly every Bermudian realized that they were sitting, quite literally, on a mountain of gold. But it wasn't until one fateful day in August 1955 that Teddy Tucker would go from local hero to international legend. It was the height of hurricane season, and the waters had been especially turbulent. But Ted and his crew decided that there was much more to be gleaned from the sunken wreck that had first put them on the government's payroll. Teddy dove down for a closer look, because aside from the chance of falling wood, the shipwreck appeared relatively safe. And this was years before that freaky giant eel from Super Mario 64. Dotting the ocean floor and glimmering in the fragmented sunlight were a series of gold coins. Teddy wiped the grime and sand away from the surface of one of the coins and saw that it was minted in the year 1592. Imagine that, getting gold doubloons on the first try. Now up until that point, Teddy didn't care too much about treasure hunting, deeming it an unrealistic pursuit. But when you find literal Spanish gold at the bottom of the ocean, it tends to change your mind about those kinds of things pretty quickly. Problem was, Teddy and his gang had already been dealing with a series of storms, and these weren't just summer thunder showers either. This is the edge of the Caribbean. Think a couple of Hurricane Katrinas a few times a month. This is what Teddy was up against, and if he wanted to continue to look for sunken plunder, he needed to act fast. Fortunately, Teddy was also a genius, and knew how to apply maritime technology in a practical way. By using a compressor hose attached to the ship, Teddy was able to blast away sand that had accumulated in and around the wooden wreck over the last few centuries. Almost immediately, all sorts of bling started popping up. Pearl jewelry, gold buttons, ingots, you name it. At the start of September, with the weather getting worse by the weeks, it was time to call it quits. On Sunday the 11th, Teddy took a planned last dive and brought his air hose with him. He started jet blasting sand away from a gathering of brain coral and, well, the next part is better left to Teddy's own words. When the debris settled, my eyes fell on a gold cross lying down in the sand. I picked it up and turned it over. Awestruck, I counted the large green emeralds on its face. There were seven of them, each as big as a musket ball. From small rings on the arms of the cross hung tiny gold nails, representing the nails in Christ's hands, and at the foot was the ring for a third, which had been lost. It remains my most treasured discovery. After a fair bit of drama and intrigue, which believe me, we'll get into later, Tucker's cross, as it was dubbed, ended up being proudly displayed in the aquarium museum that Teddy worked for. 
The gold and emerald studded cross became a star attraction of the island and launched Teddy Tucker to international acclaim. By the end of the 1960s, the nation of Bermuda had literally raised its history from the depths. Treasure diving and shipwreck exploration was all the rage. The government decided that Bermuda needed a museum to put all of its history on display and commissioned the construction of the Maritime Museum. In 1975, the museum was ready for its grand opening, which was set to attract a wide array of celebrities, including the celebrity, Elizabeth II, Queen of England. The government turned to Teddy Tucker to select artifacts to be put on display, and he knew exactly which priceless artifact would impress Her Majesty. Days before the grand opening, Teddy went to the glass case that housed the cross and carefully removed the object from its container. But something was different. Sure, the cross looked the same, but it no longer felt or even weighed like gold at all. In fact, as Teddy turned the cross over and over in his hands, trying to figure out if he was going crazy or not, it suddenly hit him. This cross was made out of plastic. The diver had been duped. Once thought lost forever, the greatest treasure ever pulled up from the ocean floor had been lost again, replaced by an expertly designed decoy. What? The Age of Discovery is portrayed as a time when the great empires of Britain and Spain sailed the ocean in search of new lands, colonies, and spices their descendants would never even use because Becky thinks her parsley is spicy. While all of this is not entirely incorrect, most of the less savory aspects of this era have been glossed over by a small collective of Europeans known colloquially as white people. The real truth is a bit more nasty than Christopher Columbus making friends with Native Americans and inventing popcorn at Thanksgiving. Here, have some blankets, now with smallpox. Though the Spaniards had been successful in discovering new worlds, these worlds had already been discovered some odd thousand years ago before them, when the indigenous peoples of the Americas came over via the ice bridge, took a good look around and said, hmm, not bad. And they ran with the concept pretty well for a good couple thousand more years or so, stretching well down into South America. This is why Los Conquistadores, aka the Conquerors, has always been more of a fitting name for a people who came to a world that was not theirs than robbed, killed, and enslaved its civilizations, all for the acquisition of wealth, mainly gold. By the mid-1500s, the Spanish had done a bang-up job of banging up South America and decimating a millennium's worth of advanced civilization, which had already given the world such novel inventions as calendars, chocolate, corn, the number zero, and a radical concept called bathing. The Spanish were always hungry for gold, but when the conquistadors came upon a certain green gem found among the peoples of Mexico, 
they started to build up an appetite for emeralds, and they wanted to know where to find more of them. Around 1537, the conquistadors had expanded their conquistadoring to Colombia, and had managed to score hundreds of precious gems from the natives. In 1558, the Spaniards finally located the source of all these emeralds, a mine known as Muzo. To this day, the mines of Muzo, not a J.R.R. Tolkien name, but a real place, still produced some of the world's largest emeralds. And lucky for the Spaniards, there were all these indigenous peoples around who forced into slave labor for the purpose of mining these pretty green rocks. Nobody knows for sure, but it's widely believed that the emeralds embedded in Tucker's cross originated from Muzo, and the cross itself was likely forged by a native artisan. The cross may have been destined for the private altar or shrine of someone among the Spanish aristocracy. Based on when the mines were taken over by the Spaniards, and cross-referencing this with the year stamped on the coins Tucker found, we can trace the creation of the cross to roughly between the years 1560 and 1590. But you didn't tune into this episode for dates, you tuned in for the drama, and nothing is more dramatic than a doomed ship carrying billions of dollars in Spanish gold. The San Pedro was the name of the ship that would one day be discovered off the Bermudian coast, but back in the day, calling your ship the San Pedro was on par with calling it Bodie McBoatface. Chances are, if you were a Spanish sea captain named Peter, or Pedro, you were going to name your ship after the saint that shared your moniker, the Spanish, combining religion and vanity for the last 500 years. Thanks to the wonder of real researchers on the internet who aren't me, we have managed to narrow down the right San Pedro, which sailed the shipping lanes to and from the Azores, Portugal, Cuba, and Colombia. Bermuda was also the prime layover between Spain and Cartagena, Colombia, the most likely origin point for the cross. Records show that in 1594, an armada-flanked Spanish merchant vessel named the San Pedro sailed from Spain. This is actually very close to the year that was stamped onto the recovered gold coins. Historians have also managed to chart the ship's course, which shows that the San Pedro followed a return trade route through Bermudian waters. And need I point out that if the ship was being led by the Spanish Armada, it's probably safe to say that it was carrying some rather precious cargo when it went down. But here's the freaky part. Nobody knows how it actually sank. I'm not saying it was aliens, but also probably aliens. But whatever got to the San Pedro, the ship ended up at the bottom of the ocean, where it would remain undiscovered for the next several hundred years. Born in 1925, Edward Bolton Tucker would become one of the most famous Bermudians in the history of the island. After discovering the cannons of the San Pedro in the late 50s, Teddy went on to perfect the art of underwater treasure hunting and helped to launch the burgeoning field of marine archaeology. Teddy became a national hero and kind of a certified badass. There are no records of Tucker ever fighting a shark, but also there are no records saying that Teddy didn't fight a shark. Teddy's methods weren't just unorthodox, they were friggin' hilarious. Being that the waters of Bermuda are virtually crystal clear, it's easy enough to spot sunken ships merely by 
looking down. And turns out the best way to do this, at least according to Teddy, was by strapping yourself in a deck chair, tied to a giant helium-filled balloon, and being towed by your boat. Essentially, the greatest maritime discoveries of the 20th century were found by means of hot air balloon jet ski. Kind of like if Robert Ballard were to guest star in an episode of MTV's Jackass. But Teddy Tucker was cool like that. He also demanded that his wife and daughter were to be included on his missions. In a period of history when women were still handcuffed to stoves or however the 1960s worked. He was repeatedly featured in National Geographic and was the inspiration for a major character in the 1977 adventure film, The Deep, in which he also has a cameo. When Teddy discovered his eponymous cross, he knew he had chanced across something special, but he couldn't have possibly known how much hot water, pardon the pun, it would land him in. At first, Teddy and his crew decided that a find this great needed to be kept under wraps until they could all decide what the hell they were going to do with a priceless artifact. But Bermuda being literally a small island, word got out fast that old Ted Tucker had found something beyond normal value. The media picked up at the story at once. The first thing Teddy had to do was figure out just how much the cross alone was worth. So he contacted a friend in the States, a fellow by the name of Mendel Peterson, who worked at the Smithsonian and held the very long title of Associate Curator and Curator of the Divisions of Military and Naval History. So Peterson flew out to Bermuda to see what the big deal was, and reportedly, his eyes almost popped out of his head, and that's a direct quote, when he saw what his bud Ted had found. After hitting the books and examining the cross over the course of a few days, Peterson appraised its value to the tune of 250,000 Bermudian dollars, which equals out to 250,000 American dollars. With this discovery, Teddy Tucker could easily retire, though to be frank, he'd been pretty much living the retiree life up until this point anyway. Meanwhile, while all of this was going down, the media chain had carried the story all the way to the pages of Time magazine. Teddy's secret was out. The world knew that there was a shipwreck with hidden riches sunk off the coast of Bermuda, and everyone wanted a piece of the pie. Strange boats began following Teddy on his sojourns out to sea. People wanted to find out where the wreck of the San Pedro was hidden, and Teddy wasn't talking. Then things began to escalate. One night, Teddy and his wife woke up to an intruder trying to break into their house, presumably to steal the Emerald Cross. So Teddy wised up and put the cross in a safety deposit box of his bank. But that's when the Bermudian government finally came a-callin' and demanded that Teddy hand the treasure over to them, as it was found in Bermudian waters and they claimed sovereignty. Teddy fought the man, and when the man pushed back, Teddy took his cross, threw it into an empty potato sack, and took a long walk off a short pier. Which was okay, because Teddy had scuba equipment on when he did that. Teddy hid the cross in an underwater cave, and took the tried and true stance of being stubborn as all get out, until the government finally relented and made Teddy an offer of $100,000. 
It was far less than the cross was actually worth. But Teddy figured this was the best offer he'd get before the treasury decided to just flat out force him to hand it over. So he relented. But Teddy managed to get his cake and eat it too. The government put the cross on display in the Aquarian Museum, which Teddy and his wife Edna already ran. And as for Mendel Peterson, he would go on to pioneer the field of underwater archaeology, so things worked out okay for him as well. But do you know who things did not work out okay for? Tucker's Cross. By the time Teddy discovered the fake, experts, including Scotland Yard, had no idea when it had been swapped and who had done the deed. Initially, it was believed that the theft had been an inside job, but after authorities pointed out the intricacy of the forgery, they knew they were dealing with an expert who had planned out the heist and knew exactly what they were doing. I've briefly touched upon the gray, high-stakes world of art theft before, in the wartime theft of the Amber Room and the dodgy under-the-table dealings surrounding Chinese imperial seals. Half the time, whenever a treasure goes missing, you can blame either the Nazis, opportunistic thieves, or Hobby Lobby. These topical references doing anything for you? Believe it or not, art theft is a relatively recent phenomena. And though there is no one moment in history where it became en vogue, one of its most widely publicized examples is the theft of a certain painting hanging in the Louvre. Before 1911, if you went back and asked any man or woman on the street to describe the Mona Lisa, they'd probably have no clue what you were talking about, strange time traveler from the 21st century. Until its rather simple heist by Vincenzo Perugia, who practically walked through the door and took the painting off the wall, da Vinci's mysterious portrait of Lisa del Giacondo wasn't well known. In a way, it's because of the drama surrounding its loss and recovery that has made the Mona Lisa the most ubiquitous painting in the world. The problem with stealing a painting is that there's no instant monetary payoff. And it's very hard to get away with selling a priceless work of art when everybody is out there looking for it. This was the exact problem that plagued Perugia, who attempted to ransom the painting back to his homeland of Italy. Obviously, it didn't work, and Perugia ended up in jail. And since art theft is a relatively victimless crime, not my words by the way, sentencing isn't particularly harsh. Perugia got off after only a few years, and then went on to lead a relatively decent life. That there wasn't stricter punishment imposed on art thieves is one of the reasons it's become such a pervasive crime nowadays, which really didn't kick off in earnest until criminals could find a way to monetize their heists. That line of business finally opened up after the first public well-to-do auction, which took place in 1958 at Sotheby's, which, by the way, I pronounced the last episode as Soothbees, so sorry for that. A really great book called Museum of the Missing details the genesis of the art auction as we know it, and how these high-stakes auctions embolden the trade of art theft. Basically, art as a commodity that the rich could possess and trade wasn't really a thing until this one night in history, when the curators of Sotheby's held a widely publicized auctioning of seven paintings, including Cézanne, Les Garçons, or Gilets Rouges, which means the boy in the red hat, I think. 
This later painting became the subject of a wild standoff between two bidders that ended in a final sale of $220,000. It was the most expensive auction at that point in history, and once it was done, auction houses all over the world knew that there was money to be made in dealing art to rich people with an absurd amount of disposable income. And the thieves of the world agreed. For the next few decades, it became very easy to steal artwork and insert it into the auction circuit, where art houses and auctioneers would purchase the piece, no questions asked, from thieves disguising themselves as reputable art dealers. It was a two-way crime, and it led to a rash of both forgeries and thefts. The problem was that, before the modern system of cataloging artwork, it was actually very hard to track art pieces and artifacts that were out there in the wild. Pawning stolen art was a long con with delayed gratification, but tremendous returns on interest. A clever grifter could hold on to a stolen or forged piece for a couple of years, wait for the scandal to blow over, and then sell it to an auction house on the other side of the world for a premium. The golden age of art heists was in the later 60s and 70s, when thieves the world over discovered that the hardest piece of art theft was in stealing the piece of art in the first place. And even then, security on artwork wasn't very high, because museums didn't yet realize that they were dealing with the pandemic. It's hard to tell if the perpetrators or perpetrator behind the clever swap of the Tucker Cross had any prior art burglary experience. Some heists are one-and-done deals, after all, in many cases, you can live out a very cushy long life with one well-placed purchase. There are embarrassingly few leads on who is behind the theft of the Tucker Cross. It has not resurfaced since its heist, though there are a few vague theories concerning who took it and how. Now, I mentioned that initially it was believed that the crime was an inside job perpetrated by someone inside the museum. And if we roll with this theory, then it's more than likely that the thief would have wanted to get the cross off the island as quickly as possible before the ruse was discovered. Fortunately for them, it seems like it took quite a while before anyone realized that the cross had been swapped out with a fake. So we have a possible thief, but then who could our buyer be? Art crime investigators tell us that there are plenty of crazy rich people out there who are content in their knowledge of keeping priceless artifacts that they know don't belong to them and will be seen by only a few eyes. So really, it could be anybody. Officially, the theft of the Tucker Cross has no real suspect. But baseless speculation and armchair detective work is the stuff that Unsolved Mystery podcasts are made of, and I did not come here to disappoint. I have a theory of my own. And though I guarantee you that it's 75% unlikely that this is the truth of the matter, I am here to present you with a somewhat convincing argument, and also because we haven't yet hit the 30-minute running time. The Villa Vizcaya is an Italian-style manor and garden estate overlooking Biscayne Bay in Miami, Florida. For visual reference, the Vizcaya looks not unlike the setting of a James Bond film's climax, and something, roughly to that effect, actually took place here in the early 1970s. The Vizcaya was built by wealthy businessman John Deering in 1920, and like most absurdly rich retirees, Deering wanted to live out his golden years in style and comfort. But unlike most absurdly rich retirees, 
Deering had taste and sophistication. He filled his Tuscan-styled villa with a collection of priceless art and artifacts, which included, among other things, a silver bowl owned by Napoleon Bonaparte, who you may have heard of. After Deering's passing, his daughter sold the land to the state and it was converted into a public museum. On March 22, 1971, three well-dressed figures walked into the Villa Vizcaya and left with thousands of dollars in rare artifacts and jewels. The Vizcaya had become the latest victim of Manhattan's most extravagant jewel thieves, the Mr. Stan operation, which, befitting the time period when all this went down, sounds exactly like the name of a really great disco band. Mr. Stan himself was Vojislav Stanimirovic, a Serbian immigrant, journalist, member of the Manhattan elite, and international jewel thief. There was a lot to like about Mr. Stan, apparently. After coming to America, he opened up a successful restaurant, and his wife, Branka, became a model and art instructor. Now, his son, Pavel Stanimirovich, a former jewel thief himself, claims that his father and mother were driven to a life of crime after being extorted by the Serbian mafia in New York. Whether or not this is true is not for me to say, mostly because Pavel and his father are still alive, and I like to make a habit of taking the sides of people who could easily make me disappear. Mr. Stan, his wife, and their getaway driver rose to prominence as some of New York's most notorious burglars, having boosted most of the Diamond District at the start of the 70s. The NYPD had been monitoring the trio for months, and after the Villa Vizcaya job, they were arrested only three days later. Unfortunately, a majority of the stolen loot, including the Napoleonic Bull, was never recovered. That's where the story of the Villa Vizcaya heist ends, but as one reads into Mr. Stan's legacy, it becomes clear that him and his family have a larger hand in not just this heist, but some of the most audacious and extravagant heists in modern history. Both Mr. Stan and his son have been incriminated as affiliates with the Pink Panther network of jewel thieves, which I will most definitely be devoting an entire episode to eventually, if I don't end up at the bottom of the Hudson River. The Stans had their hands in a lot of thieving operations, and my research tells me that they weren't the types to squeal. They sold the Vizcaya plunder to somebody, and that somebody may in fact have the Tucker Cross in their private collection as well. Bermuda is only two hours by plane to New York, and back in the day, airlines didn't keep as good a record of their passengers as they do nowadays, so it's actually really hard to trace the movement of the Mr. Stan operation. We do know they had finesse. Bronca herself was an art expert and artist, and it's not hard to fabricate a replica if you know what you're doing and have an eye for aesthetics. Though the Tucker Cross forgery wasn't discovered until 1975, there's no telling when the original was swapped out. The Stans were arrested in 1971, after almost a year's worth of heists. Tucker's Cross was originally placed in the Bermuda Aquarium Museum supposedly around 1969, so the timelines do match up. I'm not saying the Stans did it, as the evidence is flimsy at best, but if not them, then someone very similar to them did. 
Sadly, if Scotland Yard themselves have so far been unable to pinpoint the whereabouts of the cross, then it's highly unlikely that some millennial with a podcast is going to get much farther than them. In June of 2014, Teddy Tucker passed away at the impressive age of 89. Reportedly, he was still diving and boating right up until the end. I can't be sassy about any of this. Teddy sounded like a really neat and nice person, and quite frankly, personalities like him and their stories are one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast. I mean, it's not always about the treasure, but the treasure hunt. Tucker never found out what happened to his legendary cross, and I doubt any of us will ever find out either. But unlike the Amber Room or the Heirloom Seal of China, it's highly probable that the Tucker Cross is still out there somewhere. It's been almost 50 years since it vanished. 50 years is a long time. People die, even collectors of stolen artifacts. Imagine being the person to open up a storage locker somewhere in Beverly Hills and finding Tucker's cross just laying there, wedged between a pile of fur coats and antique lamps. The cross remained at the bottom of the ocean for several hundred years before it was discovered. Maybe it's only a matter of time before it resurfaces. Because that's the thing about lost treasures. They don't always stay lost for good. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast or thought, eh, it's okay, the nicest thing you can do is leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can experience the sultry, dulcet tones of my voice. You can connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or most importantly of all, corrections, please shoot me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E. Next week, we'll journey to South Africa, where we'll explore the possibly lost lineage of women with tremendous power, power over the weather itself. The adventure continues. The NYPD had been monitored. Oof. Monitor that, NYPD.